We've not been following a strict structure through the book of Revelation, partly because it's very hard to lay it out until you've been through some of it. But we do have a flow that we've been following. There is a general chronology that the book follows, although the text itself will go back and forth between different elements. So it's really more of a thematic flow. But let's review these things. There's going to be 12 of these eventually, but uh, we, we have seven so far. The first is the rapture of the church which once again is not specifically described in the book of Revelation, although I believe if you're convinced of it, as I am, you can see it in Revelation. It, it is, doesn't close off that possibility, which is that Jesus will return prior to the end, which is what Revelation's all about, to catch up his people into heaven to be with him. Number two is the rise of Babylon, that a worldwide empire will rise, take over the globe, and will establish what will be a seven-year dominance of the globe. This final period called the Tribulation is a seven-year period. That leads us to number three, the ravage of God's people, which we've seen quite a bit in this book, that this will be a time of persecution and oppression for the Jews and also for all who put their faith in Jesus Christ during this time. That is going to be a key plank in the platform of Babylon and the Antichrist to oppress God's people. Number four is the ruin of the planet. And this actually takes up a smaller proportion of the book than maybe you're expecting when we read of the great plagues that are going to come upon the earth. The Lord will allow stars to fall from heaven. He will uh, send devastation upon the waters and upon the trees and upon even the sky itself. Number five is the revenge of the devil. There's a couple ways you see this. The Lord Jesus is going to allow the abyss, God's demon prison, to be unlocked and unleash the worst of the worst demons on the world to torment and then to kill those who live on the earth. We also saw that this is all part of Satan's great wrath as he is cast out of heaven and no longer allowed to accuse God's brethren. Number six is the refuge of the faithful. We're going to talk about that more today as well, where God will, number one, provide a place of refuge for the Jews in the wilderness, which is at a place near Basra, it's an indefinite location, but it will be made clear on the day uh, that the children of Israel will flee from Babylon and especially what we're going to talk about next. But God will preserve a remnant. And even those, as we're going to read today, who perish during this time will be kept in the arms of the Lord, even in death. So praise God for that. Number seven is the reign of the Antichrist. And this is what we looked at in chapter uh, 13, especially. That Babylon will begin as a coalition of ten different kingdoms, but there will be one man halfway through this seven-year period who forces out three of these kings and takes a position himself as the dictator of the world. He will take his place in God's holy temple, which then therefore must be rebuilt, we believe, and declare himself to be God. There will be a false prophet who comes alongside him who compels all the world to worship this Antichrist, the beast he is called symbolically in the book of Revelation. There will be an image of him that is set up and all men and women on earth will be required to take a mark on their hand or their head to indicate that they belong to this beast and they will worship him or you will be executed. And we looked last time at several modern day things that we see and to clarify what that was all about, it was to show number one, that the apparatus is in place or is being put in place for somebody to take advantage of it in this way. And number two, there are people who would like to do this kind of thing, which doesn't mean the end has come, 
but it is one of those things that causes you to raise your eyebrows and say, it would not take much for all of this to happen. The Lord would have to remove his hand of restraint and all of that, but it's, it's shocking to look at. And study of, I love what one of my commentators called this when he talked about the dragon who is Satan, the beast out of the sea who is the Antichrist, and the beast out of the earth who is the false prophet. He calls them the malignant trinity, which that's a pretty good description. It's a false imitation trinity, but malignant like a tumor growing on the earth. When you study that chapter, chapter 13 especially, it can be intimidating, it can be disheartening, it can be perplexing, and the unfortunate thing is many prophecy teachers are content to leave it there, to say, look at all the terrible things happening in the world, watch what they're doing in Europe, or they're doing in this country, or what the globalists are up to, or whatever, and so, so beware, the end is coming. Now let's all close in prayer, let's go away. And that leaves the Christian perplexed and afraid. But today, as we finish this, this section that is giving us behind-the-scenes context, we're going to leave number seven, the reign of the Antichrist, and return for a moment to number six, the refuge of the faithful. Because this is not supposed to be written to us to make us afraid, but to warn us of what is to come, and yet to produce endurance and faith in the church. One of the best psalms in the Bible, if you can rank them, you know what I mean? Like if one of the best, Psalm 37, which I like to call the election year psalm. The first two verses say this, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Can I just say that first line again? Fret not yourself because of evildoers, nor be envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Isn't that true? You're real worried about one guy or one group or one thing, and then you blink and they're gone. Now there's another one. Yeah, but wise old David, I believe, writing this psalm is like, listen, I've been around for a long time. I've fought a lot of enemies. I've seen a lot of evil people. And you know what I've learned? They don't last. So you, my young son, or you, young reader, or you who has a tendency to be afraid as you read about the rise of the Antichrist, don't fret because the Lord has it under control. Whether in the end times or not, Good people tend to fret about the rise of evil days and evil men. There's a lot of that going on today. But today's scripture is going to remind us that even amid the destruction that will be wrought at the end of time by the devil and by his antichrist, Jesus still sits enthroned in the heavens. And not only that, but Jesus has his people with him in the heavens no matter what. And judgment is coming and I hope we can go through this and realize judgment is not a bad thing. The opposite of that. Judgment is a good thing. Judgment means justice. That Jesus sits enthroned. He's got his people in the palm of his hand. And justice is coming for those that have been oppressed by evildoers. We're going to read about the harvest that is coming to the world. And for the saint the harvest means redemption and it means life, but I will warn you, for the sinner, the harvest means only death. So for many of us today, this will be very encouraging, but for some of you, it might be very intimidating, and I hope it leads you to a point of decision when you're willing to leave behind the fear of judgment and you can embrace celebration because you've come to Christ yourself. Let's look at verses 1 through 5 of chapter 14 this morning. Then I looked... That's usually an indication in Revelation when he says something like, then I looked, that we're transitioning to a different vision or a different symbol. So, then I looked and behold, 
On Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. We are still in what is called a contextual interlude in Revelation. We've been reading about all the judgments that are coming on the world. And then we got to a couple that said, now the end is come and God's kingdom is about to be established and the, the kingdoms of this world are about to fall. Well, then the passage goes away for a few chapters and says, now let me describe what this kingdom is. Because the last judgments are going to be all about the fall of Babylon. But we've hardly talked about the rise of Babylon. So we're in this interlude of what is going on behind the scenes. And the chronology, as far as the book is concerned, is paused for a moment. And before we return to it, we're going to come back to heaven's perspective. Up till now, we've seen earth's perspective. And it's not a pleasant sight. The seven-headed dragon, who is Satan, is cast down to the earth, full of wrath. And then the beast rises out of the sea. And then the false prophet is oppressing God's people and the marks on the hand and the head. And we can start to quiver in our boots if we're not careful. But remember, Satan was cast out of where? He was cast out of heaven. So now the camera, so to speak, pans back up to heaven. It says, let's see what's going on here. And I'll tell you, Jesus is not fretting about the devices of the devil. John sees the lamb. The Bible, or especially the book of Revelation, compares Jesus to a lamb who was slain. So this is Jesus on Mount Zion. What is Zion? We get used to saying that. Uh, This is actually pretty well defined in Scripture. Depending on where the person saying it was, Zion narrows in. So if you're outside of the promised land, Zion was Israel. We're going to go back to Zion. If you're in the promised land, Zion more specifically refers to Jerusalem, the city where David was king. If you're in Jerusalem, it's specifically referring to that temple mount, that that's Mount Zion. But it also is a spiritual reference to the spiritual throne of the Lord, Mount Zion. And so we find it here, Jesus is standing on Mount Zion. And we know that The temple, as it was built, according to Hebrews 8, verse 5, was built as a mirror of what is seen in heaven. The scene that is about to follow in these chapters is is going to have a lot of pictures of the sanctuary, of the temple, or the tabernacle in heaven on God's mountain, so to speak. So it's like, this is the real Mount Zion. Because down on the earth, in the earthly Mount Zion, the throne room, or the temple has been defiled by the Antichrist. He set up an image of himself. They're beheading the faithful. But what's going on in the real Mount Zion? There sits the lamb as he always has. And we see along with him these 144,000. We've already seen them back in chapter 7, verse 4. That before the worst of the worst judgments were poured out, they said, wait, first we've got to seal these 144,000. And they were marked on their forehead, as you can see here, with the name of the Son and the name of the Father. It's a, whether or not this is a literal seal. I don't believe people are going to be walking around you know, with a, a 
cross on their forehead or something like that. It's the idea that God has set them aside for himself. And it told us in chapter 7, 12,000 were sealed from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, which is important to remember because right now, most of the Jews, because the name Jew is, is, goes back to this, are from the tribes either of Judah or Benjamin or in some cases the tribe of Levi. And it's very difficult for the average Hebrew to find out what tribe they belong to. But guess what? God knows. And God's going to take good care of it. And he's going to secure them. Now, there are those who see this and they go, well, this is not the 144,000 Jews. This is anybody who believes in Jesus. I don't think you can say that, though. Because we've already seen that they were very specifically 12,000 from Reuben, 12,000 from Levi, 12,000 from Judah, 12,000 from Issachar. And it's, it's just pushing too hard to say that this is not the same group of people. This is, this is the same group, the remnant of Israel that will be preserved, 12,000 from each tribe. And he hears a voice like the roar of waters and a sound like thunder. Usually in the Bible, that's how you describe the voice of God. That's not what it is, though. They're all playing harps. So some people like to get real cute and think they're smart and say, where do we get this weird idea of playing harps in heaven? From right here. But you shouldn't think of like Daffy Duck floating up to heaven after an anvil dropped on his head. It says it is so loud, it's like the rush of many waters. And their voices are like thunder. What is worship in heaven like? Well, it's loud. can tell you that much. Loud music. On the harps, no idea what the tune sounded like, but if it's a song of thunder, maybe it was a pretty exciting tune on the harps. <laughs> Verse 4 tells us some details about them. It says they are virgins, sexually pure. Parthenoi is the Greek word there. And you've heard of the Parthenon, where the Greeks would come and worship. The, it's, it's a place where you could worship every god. Well, a Parthenos was a priest in this place. And usually they were the virgins that you would come and worship. So that's where the word comes from. It was not uh, godly in Greek terms, but in the Lord's terms, it's a, it's a good thing. They were virgins, sexually pure. So the question becomes now, is this literal or is this symbolic? Is he symbolically calling them virgins, meaning they have not given themselves to the spiritual adultery of worshiping idols? That, that, Seems to be at least true, right? Because we're talking about these holding to the worship of God as opposed to the idolatry of the Antichrist. But we should not too quickly brush aside the possibility that these are actual virgins set aside by the Lord. Now, we live in a day and an age where we are so oversexed that the thought of somebody committing themselves to perpetual virginity for the sake of God, we almost look that down as a bad, unnatural thing. But that has been part of the tradition of God's people going all the way back to the book of 1 Corinthians. That there would be those that would set themselves aside sexually for the purpose of serving the Lord. Sometimes you say, well, I'm called to singleness because we're like, you know, my last relationship didn't end very well. But if I ever meet somebody, I might not be called anymore. But this is probably, or at least it's likely, this is what's going on. Uh, it could be that the Lord is going to preserve these people, which maybe would be young people, whose job it will be to populate the kingdom after this is over, which would make them men in all likelihood, and that they are going to then take Hebrew and Jewish wives and they're going to rebuild the nation of Israel, that that could be what he's getting at. I think mostly he's talking about spiritual purity here, but um, in any case, they are righteous, verse 5 tells us. Can I remind you, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul said that it's, he even said, you want my opinion on who you should marry? Paul says, don't get married. 
Because then you can serve Jesus full time and you don't have to worry about pleasing your wife or pleasing your husband. He says, if you're already married, great. If you're betrothed, go ahead and get married. That's fine. He says, and if, if you are so overcome with lust that you can't help yourself, yeah, get married. There's nothing wrong with it. He says, but in my opinion, there is so much work to be done evangelizing the whole world. It'd be better just to not be married like me. Now, he, he also clarifies Barnabas was married. Peter was married. There's no judgment there, but we ought to not dismiss that so lightly. And if you've never even considered the thought of doing a lavish sacrifice like that to the Lord, then maybe you ought to. They are first fruits, it says, which is another uh, reason why I believe it, it is a reference to the Jews here, because they're not the only ones who are saved out of the tribulation. They're the first fruits of the tribulation. And we're going to read more about these other nations in just a minute. This scene here of those that are redeemed of the nation of Israel kept themselves spiritually and perhaps even also sexually pure, standing before God, singing his praise. What a breath of fresh air after reading about the false prophet and the Antichrist. Of all the terrible things they're doing on the world, the point is you can't touch those that Jesus has set aside for himself. Jesus is in heaven with his sealed ones. The Jews will not be eradicated, and Jesus always wins. If there's a two-word summary for the book of Revelation, it's Jesus wins. John 10, 27 through 28, Jesus said this, and it's such a great passage. I'm sure you know it. He said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. He's talking to people that refuse to believe and are saying things to the effect of, why should we believe you? You haven't done enough to prove to us that you're the son of God. And Jesus goes, well... Lots of people have because they're my sheep and I'm their shepherd and they hear my voice. He says, I give them, verse 28, eternal life and they will never perish and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. And that's illustrated right here in Revelation chapter 14. And you can see too how Satan is trying to duplicate what Jesus has. Jesus sits on Mount Zion with his that have been sealed by his father and who are worshiping him. And what does Satan have down on the earth? On the physical Mount Zion, he set up his false Christ for everybody to come and worship him. And he's marking people on their foreheads and their hands. Satan is a spiritual hack. He cannot create anything. He can only duplicate what God has done and pervert it. This is why if you look at Satan's plans, they're, they're an inversion of what Jesus wants to do. You ever buy a knockoff brand of something? Anybody else get a knockoff iPod when you were growing up? Mom, Dad, I want an iPod. Here, this one's better, and it only costs $15. Turns out there's a reason everybody's buying an iPod and not this thing here from Sam's Club or whatever it was. Because it's a knockoff. Well, it does the same thing, yeah, but it doesn't do it as well, and it breaks and it collapses. You ever get made fun of for having shoes that look like what everybody else is buying, but they're not exactly the same thing? I never knew shoes and clothes were, mattered so much to people until like the sixth or seventh grade when it started mattering. And people started like, where did you buy those shoes? I'm like, I don't know, Payless. He shops at Payless. I didn't realize that was a big deal until all of a sudden it was. Because it's a knockoff. It's a hack. It's not the real thing. You ever go in the, the line at the grocery store and they're selling a movie that's kind of the new Disney cartoon, but it's just a little bit off? It's like the frog and the princess so that somebody might accidentally buy the wrong thing and think they actually got it. That's Satan. That's what he does. He's a hack. 
He can only imitate, and he doesn't do a good job of it. He thinks he's going to be the new God. He thinks he's going to have his own Christ and his own prophets and his own sealed people. But there sits Jesus in heaven laughing at his pitiful attempts. So don't be afraid of the devil. We're supposed to fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So what does Satan try to do? He tries to scare you so you'll fear him. And he shows up around Halloween time. Ah, ooga, booga, 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 booga. Yeah, they fear me like they fear God. No, we don't. He's going to get crushed like a bug when Jesus returns. Despite the tumult of the tribulation or any tribulation you face, Jesus is Lord above it all, and he's got you. Praise the Lord. So as you read and as you learn, as you study about things that are going on in the world and how the end times are coming quickly, don't be distressed or afraid. Just remember that Jesus is in control, and he's going to take good care of those who are his. Verse 6 now. Then I saw another angel, lots of angels in Revelation. I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. So we just had the 144,000 Jews. Now we're looking at every tribe and nation. And he said, verse 7, with a loud voice, fear God. And give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image, and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. John sees three more angels here with three different announcements that sum up what is about to happen. Remember, We've already even heard the announcement that the kingdom has come and Satan's kingdom has been destroyed two or three times, but it hasn't been narrated for us yet. It keeps bringing us right up to that point and then pulling back and giving us more context. And here it's, it's kind of doing the same thing again. It's announcing what is about to happen before it explains it in detail. This first angel flies overhead preaching an eternal gospel. Now it uses the indefinite article here, an eternal gospel, uh, but... Galatians 1 verse 8 reminds us that even if an angel preaches a different gospel, that angel is to be accursed, right? So th this should not be taken as a clever way of saying there'll be a different gospel. No, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the Son of God came down to earth, died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, and rose from the dead, and if you believe in his name, you will be saved. That's the gospel. And it represents here the spread of that gospel to every nation and tribe and language and people. Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse that first the gospel must be preached to every corner of the globe and then the end will come. Every tribe, nation, and tongue will hear the gospel before the end. I have 
heard some who even say that they believe this is indicating that there will be angelic evangelists in the world during this time. I don't know that the passage definitely says that. At the very least, it tells us that the work of worldwide missions will be completed during the tribulation. Somebody says, well, what happens to those that never hear the gospel? Number one, Romans 1 tells us that they have enough to start believing and that you should trust the grace of God. But number two, he says, I'm going to get to every corner of the globe, every lost tribe, every mountain village, every inner city will be reached with the gospel before the end to every nation. And do you see in verse seven, the specific emphasis of the gospel here? If you read the book of Acts, especially, you get lots of different presentations of the gospel. Romans has a certain emphasis of the gospel. Peter has a certain emphasis. Hebrews has a certain emphasis. Even Jesus himself. It's all one gospel, but there's so many facets of it, like a diamond, that you can look at it from many different ways. What specifically is being emphasized about the gospel here? It is the fear and worship of God. Now you might say, why should I be afraid of God? Well, flip back a few pages and see what God does and keep reading to see what God is about to do. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the beginning of knowledge according to the word. This is not to exclude the forgiveness of sins, but this is to put we rebels in our place before God. That to believe in Jesus, yes, is to receive the forgiveness of your sins, to receive pardon. It's to enter into a love relationship with God, to become his son or daughter. That's true. But there is also a very strong aspect of it that this is fleeing from the wrath of God and bowing down at his feet. Ancient times, kings would go before their conquerors and they would bow the knee and the king would place his foot on the neck of this king as a symbol of, I've conquered you. I'm going to allow you to get up, but don't let anybody forget who's king around here. That is what salvation is like. When you come to Jesus, you bow the knee for Christ to place his foot on your neck. The idea being, my life belongs to Jesus now. You're swearing fealty and loyalty to a king and not to an invading conqueror who has no right to the land that you're standing on, but to the one who created all of this and deserves and is worthy of all worship and praise and adoration. Some people will wonder, what exactly does it mean to believe in Jesus? It means to stop worshiping everything else, including yourself, and start worshiping Jesus, to worship his Father, the triune, holy God of all creation. Pardon is available to all who bow the knee. We're about to read of Jesus reaping the harvest in the earth and the blood is going to flow. But as far as it, as long as it has not happened yet, pardon is available to all who ask for it. That's why it's good news, right? And the Lord is not going to allow himself to return until everybody on earth has heard this good news, has heard the message of turn or burn, to use Charles Spurgeon's famous phrase. The second angel announces the fall of Babylon. This is that worldwide empire headed up by the Antichrist, backed by Satan, who will lead the whole world into idolatry and sin. And, and this subject of Babylon is going to consume the next several chapters of Revelation, especially chapter 17. Uh, so we're not going to get into that too much. But what does it mean in, in this context here? He says, come and, and follow Jesus, fear the Lord, because Babylon is fallen. 
You can't put your trust in Babylon, whatever that means for you. You can't put your trust in your career or in your relationships or in your philosophies or whatever it might be, your business, because Babylon is fallen. Well, it hasn't fallen yet. It might as well have fallen as far as God is concerned. You have to flee from the impending doom of Babylon to drive you to Jesus. And this third angel personally addresses those who have given in to Babylon, meaning those who have worshiped the beast. When that worldwide dictator takes his place in the temple and says, not only am I king of the world, I'm God of the world, and you're going to worship me as God. And it is going to be enforced with all the worldwide tyrannical might of this Babylonian Empire, this revived kingdom that is going to be worship or die. Take the mark on your hand or your head or you cannot buy or sell. And more than that, you cannot live any longer. So what does this angel say? That you have lost and you face eternity in hell. I've heard some say, well, it just doesn't seem like Jesus to say that somebody that does something like take the mark of the beast can no longer be saved. If you say that, I would say that you are operating on sentiment more than what the word actually teaches. The Bible is abundantly clear that a person can reach a point in their life where they are no longer open to be saved. When they pass the point of no return and Jesus says, I have given you over. There's a passage in 1 John where it talks about the sin that leads to death. And he says, if somebody's committed that sin, don't even pray for them. They've reached the point where their blasphemy has exceeded the patience of Christ. Now, here's the thing that you should not do. Go around and start identifying who in your life has already reached that point. Ah, not preaching the gospel to them anymore. Because we've seen many people that everybody had counted out, like Paul the Apostle, for example, who have come back. So you need to be careful about that. But the doctrinal and theological point remains. There can come a place where God says, fine, have it your way. And one of those things that you can do that tips you over the edge is to take the mark of the beast. You think of Judas, right? When Judas betrayed Jesus. At that point, Jesus said, it's better for him that he'd never been born. This is possible. They're lost and they face eternity in hell. It says, verse 10, they will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. This is a reference back to Psalm 75, verse 8. And it is a very familiar image in scripture. Psalm 75, 8 says, in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. The Bible uses the picture of a cup of red wine. It's like an image of blood being drunk by the wicked. And it's the idea of drinking wrath upon yourself, that there's a drunkenness that comes with sin that leads you to death. And it's using this image here. This is why Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane was praying to his father, Father, if it be passable, let this what pass from me? This cup. What cup? The cup of the wrath of the father that he was about to drink on the cross. Now, the good news is that Jesus did drink the cup of wrath, didn't he? He drank it all the way down to the dregs. So you have two choices. You can either say, Jesus drank the cup of wrath for me, and I worship him now. Or you can say, I bow to no one. I'll drink it myself. But what a foolish thing to do. What a foolish thing to do. God's wrath against sin is real. And for those of you that say, I don't think it's right for God to have wrath against sin. You have wrath against sin. 
When was the last time you saw some terrible atrocity on the news and you felt your blood boil? When you've seen some radical terrorist attack that blows up children? Or you see about somebody that's been killing innocent people? Or when you see about what people have done in order to get ahead financially and have ruined the lives of some tribe in the jungle or something? You get angry! That's appropriate to be angry. Now imagine God in his perfect holiness seeing not just one sin, but every sin in perfect proportion for all of history and for all of time. Imagine the wrath that God must have. It's real. And the wrath of God leads to death. And that's not a surprise. God told Adam in the Garden of Eden that if you eat that fruit, the day you eat of it, you shall surely... Ezekiel said, the soul that sins shall surely... And Romans 6 says the wages of sin is death. And what is death? It's not just the cessation of your consciousness. It is eternity in a place called hell. Where Jesus said in Mark 9, 48, quoting from Isaiah, by the way, he said, where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. It's called the outer darkness. Imagine a place that is eternally dark, burning flames that never go out, worms devouring your body from the inside out, utterly alone and separated from everybody and everything, knowing that it was your rejection of Jesus that brought you here. What comfort then are going to be the toys that you've accumulated? Now, How are you going to feel when there's nobody left to impress online with your bold arguments and you realize that you are a fool and have to pay this penalty forever? What does he say? The smoke of their torment goes up how long? Forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of his name. This is why the saints need endurance, verse 12, because you have a choice you can give in to Babylon, or you can stay serving Jesus. If you give in to Babylon, it's death for you. You'll have your head removed. But the alternative is so much worse, the writer is saying, endure, keep going. Remember what Jesus is doing in heaven right now with his saints. Keep that in your mind, not the scary person staring you down with the barrel of a gun. It reminds us that you can choose the gospel and reject Satan. And verse 13 reminds these saints and also every saint. This is speaking about a specific time and a specific event, but it is broader than that because it applies to every generation of Christian, every generation on the earth. That death becomes a blessing when you choose it over giving in to wickedness. You know, we have this, this thing in our society and you see it in, in pop culture, movies, books all the time that there reaches a point where you've just got to sin because life gets so hard. But that's not the case. That shows that we lack fortitude as a people, that we lack endurance as Christians, that there is nothing that can move me off of the gospel. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E, and I don't care what you do to me or the ones that I love. Remember what Paul said in Philippians 1? He's in prison and he says, I might get executed, but now it's looking like I might get released and I'm trying to decide which one to pray for. Lord, let me die and go home and be with you. Because he says in Philippians 1.23, that would be far better. Says, or stay and continue to minister to the Philippians, which would be better for you. So I, he says, I don't know. I'm hard pressed between the two, but I'll probably end up sticking around, which he did. Because to choose life and to die in Christ means rest and life forever. And do you see also in verse 13, the Holy Spirit himself speaks 
voice from heaven saying, blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. So not every verse in the Bible we believe theologically was dictated. Some of these were. Write exactly this, John. And then it says, blessed indeed, says who? The Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Don't, don't get in your head that the Holy Spirit is like the force from Star Wars. He's just, he's just the love between the Father and the Son. No, man, he's got lines. He's got an opinion on this situation. The, it's like the Father says, blessed are those who die. And the Holy Spirit goes, amen, John, write that down. Because you know what it's going to mean? It's going to mean rest from their labors. And who is more familiar with the labors of an enduring Christian than the Holy Spirit who dwells within him? Maintaining this heavenly perspective is hard in the midst of opposition and evil, but we must. Babylon will fall, and the consorts of the whore of Babylon will die alongside her, but those who cling to Jesus will endure forever. Verse 14, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And the implications of the angelology of this passage, is, they're incredible. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. So verse 19, the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia which was a Roman means of measure that amounts to just under 200 miles. Determining precisely what these visions mean can be difficult, but the sense of it is unmistakable. That's true of a lot of the book of Revelation. You have two different figures here with sickles in their hands. And to me, the first one is pretty clearly Jesus. Daniel chapter 7 talks about the Son of Man riding on a cloud, and it's a picture that's brought up over and over again. Revelation 1.13 described Jesus as one like a Son of Man with the golden sash and all of that. Uh, the only shortcoming is that usually in the book of Revelation, Jesus is the Lamb. So why is he here called the Son of Man? And then some people say, well, wait a minute, this angel is telling Jesus what to do. Not necessarily, right? He's just announcing the time has come. I believe it's Jesus. He's going to reap the earth. Who else has the authority to do that? But then you have a second reaping here. And I will admit this is confusing. Uh, are they describing the same thing? Just kind of Jesus does it, but then it's, it's symbolically done by the angels as well. It is a symbolic passage, obviously, so perhaps you shouldn't read too much into it. Some see this first one as the rapture, that Jesus Christ will harvest those who are his and take them up into heaven. And that the second one is the reaping of judgment. I think that's possible. I don't know if the context really lends itself to that, but uh, you, can, you can think about that and discuss it in your home fellowships, perhaps. But the second reaping, for sure, is by these angels coming out of the heavenly temple. Remember, we're on Mount Zion. We're looking at the spiritual reality of what Satan is mocking on the earth. And this time makes it very clear. It just says the earth was reaped the first time. 
Okay, and it could be that this next picture is kind of giving us a, kind of a nested detail of that. But in any case, the wine press of the wrath of God. What's a wine press? You take the grapes off the vines, you put them in a big press, in a big uh, bucket, essentially, and you stand in it and you step on it. You press the wine with your feet in order to squish the grapes so that you can then take the juice and you can ferment it and you can make wine. The wine press. But in this case, it is not wine that we're talking about here. This is blood. This is a picture of death and judgment. Verse 20 is one of the most horrific and indeed gory pictures in the Bible. Nearly 200 miles of blood. Why that long? Because that is about the size of the promised land from north to south. Is that what it's intending to describe? Perhaps. I think the best way to understand that is that is going to be about the size of the battlefield that Jesus Christ is going to ride on at the end. And that blood will flow up to the horse's bridle, which, I mean, that's, that's a lot of blood. I read one uh, author that just about convinced me, so I'll, I'll put it out there for you, that he says it could be that this is not talking about blood flowing like a river, but blood flow talks about when somebody dies, their blood flowed out, right? And that the splattering of the blood goes up to the horse's bridle, meaning you're right on top of everything, and that that kind of carnage lasts for 200 miles, or 1,600 stadia. So is that saying that there's going to be blood like a river? That's typically how it's understood. Or just that there's been enough carnage that even the horses all the way up to their bridles are splattered with blood. Either case, it's not pretty. Where do we get this picture of the wine press of the wrath of God? It comes from Isaiah 63. I refer to this passage quite a bit. I want to read it in its entirety here today. You can turn there if you like. But this is where this picture comes from. Isaiah the prophet gives us a visual image. He says, who is this? So you can picture the prophet like gesturing, right? Who is this? Who comes from Edom in crimsoned garments from Basra. So someone coming from Edom, Basra, which is down to the south of Israel. It's a desert region. It's wilderness. Someone's coming from Basra in crimsoned garments. So red garments. He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It's a warrior marching from the wilderness with red garments. Who is this? Answer. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Who's mighty to save? It's the Lord himself. It's the servant of the Lord Jesus. So the prophet then asks, why is your apparel red? And your garments like his who treads in the wine press. Somebody's been in the wine press all day. You don't want to go out in like your new white suit. Because it's going to be a new red suit very quickly, right? So why are your garments red? This, here comes a warrior out of the wilderness. Why are your garments red? I have trodden the wine press alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments. So what's red about his garments? It's the blood, not of Jesus shed on the cross, of the enemies of God. And it stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. That doesn't sound like redemption. That just sounds like, like violence. Redemption of those who were being oppressed by the ones he trod down. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled. But there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath. There's the picture of the cup again. And I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. 
Revelation 14 is deliberately calling back to that passage right here treading the winepress of the wrath of God Almighty. Revelation 19, when Jesus returns to the earth, we'll quote it again. What is this teaching us? We know that the children of Israel are being protected in the wilderness. Where? We don't know, but it says that Jesus is going to come from Basra, which is in the wilderness of Edom, down in places like Petra, is a very common place that people identify but Jesus will return to rescue that remnant in Basra, in the wilderness, and then march on Jerusalem in victory. And he will leave a, a swath of blood-spattered earth behind him for almost 200 miles. Because he's going to tread down every enemy of Israel, the armies of the Antichrist, and ultimately the beast himself. If you cannot handle that picture of Jesus, you do not know Jesus. I'm not trying to hurt your feelings. I'm trying to call you to get a full picture of the God you serve. I love Jesus. Let the children come to me. Oh, he just loves kids. I love, yeah, Jesus did love kids. You know what else he said about kids? Whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble, it'd be better if a millstone were tied around his neck and thrown into the sea. So tie a big heavy rock around your neck and jump into the water. If you're going to hurt or cause to stumble one of my kids, why does he say that? He said, it'd be better for you to drown with a rock around your neck than for me to get hold of you. That's the kind of love Jesus had. It's not just a, a compassionate, sentimental love. It's a fierce, defensive, protective love. And one day he will return to take the kingdom back from the usurper and to strike down the armies of the evil one. The remaining chapters of Revelation will detail all of this, focusing on the city of Babylon and the beast. He's going to arise in the wilderness, protect his people, then march on Jerusalem and take his city back. For you, the point is that Jesus is coming back and you had better be ready for that great day. So oh, I don't know. When, if I see that, then I will, I'll believe. You won't have time. At that point, you won't even have survived because it'll be take the mark of the beast or die. And if you've not believed by then, then you're going to take the mark of the beast and you're going to be lost. And even if you don't live to see that day, you are under the sound of my voice today. You've heard the gospel. You've heard the announcement. And now you better do something with it or it's going to be too late for you. This will stand in judgment against you on that final day. We do have time, so let's, let's get through chapter 15 here. It's a short one. Then I saw another sign in heaven. So again, another transition point here. Another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues. Can I just say, if you don't believe in angels, you don't believe the Bible. They're everywhere, all right? Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them, the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed." After this I looked, 
and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. We're more or less returning back to the main sequence of Revelation now. We saw the seven seals as Jesus was opening the scroll that described the end of the world. When he opened that seventh seal, seven angels were given seven trumpets. And when they blew the seventh trumpet, we got this background and contained within that seven trumpet are these seven bowls. So really we're still under seal seven and trumpet seven, but we've got seven bowls or vials, like a V-I-A-L is the old King James, something that contains a liquid that you would pour out. These are the last plagues, which is one reason among many why we believe in a, a chronology of revelation. It's not just a picture. It's not a cycle. These are the last. There's an order to these things. John is looking at the sea of glass, which is the, the plain upon which God's throne sits. And now it's mingled with fire. Just picture this. It could be that that sea of crystal and glass, ice, it's sometimes called in Bible, upon which God sits, could it be that it actually reflects the mood and the thoughts of God? That there are times we see it in the Bible where it's, it's blue like the sky. And when John stands in it, he says it's like crystal, like you can see beneath him, but you're standing on, on this crystal. Now when God's wrath is turned up, it's mingled with fire. Just pretty amazing to consider, isn't it? And he sees those who conquered the beast. Who conquered the, who conquered the Antichrist? Those who died rather than give in. We saw these martyrs in Revelation 6. We talked earlier that they, they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony that they did not love their lives unto death. And they're singing with harps. Apparently we're all going to get harp lessons in heaven. And he mentions that they're singing two songs, the song of the Lamb and the song of Moses. Which one is the song of Moses? Typically, people will say Exodus 15. When they cross the Red Sea, the horse and rider thrown into the sea, right? The Lord has triumphed. Although I think more likely it's Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32 is called the song of Moses. God said, I'm going to teach you a song, Moses, and you teach it to Joshua to teach all the people to remember me. And what is the point of the song? That when judgment comes, remember that God is righteous and he will accept your repentance. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4, just give you a sample, says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. So singing a song glorifying God for his justice. That seems appropriate in this context, right? And this song of the Lamb, which I believe is written out for you here, for his just and true ways. That every nation is going to praise you because they're going to see that you were right all along. No more foolish people standing up in university saying God is not good. Everyone's going to know. And then seven angels come out carrying golden bowls full of the wrath of God. Come out of this, this tabernacle, the tent of witness. Remember, we're, we're still kind of in this heavenly sanctuary scene. And the tabernacle is filled with the smoke of God's glory, which happened when they dedicated the temple and when they dedicated the tabernacle. So the presence of God fills this place. There's no more time left. The wrath of God is coming. 
Everything is building up to this outpouring of God's wrath and all the martyrs praise him for it because the last time they were speaking, they said in chapter six, how long, O Lord, must we wait? And the Lord said, just a little bit longer. But now a little bit longer is over and the wrath of God is going to be poured out. I don't know if I like talking about this wrath stuff. The wrath of God seems so old-fashioned and, and so barbaric. <laughs> God would not be good if he were to allow criminals to go free. You know, back in the day, out on the frontier, there wasn't a lot to do. So when somebody got hanged, that, would have, that was a big deal. They'd have a party. They'd, seriously, they'd have a barbecue. People would come from miles around to come and watch the hanging. We say, how barbaric. Okay, well, what movies did you watch this week? Let's just leave that aside, all right? I recognize that one's CG, but still, you get the idea. And now imagine at this hanging, everybody's come out. There are some people that are just there for the sheer delight of watching somebody die. Oh, I want to see. Okay, that's not the wrath of God. That's not good. The Lord says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Then imagine you've got another. Imagine you've got some woman, perhaps, who sees this poor soul about to be hanged, and she starts to say, it's not fair. Why don't they just let him go? Well, that's, that's not God either. Because God knows that this man has committed crimes that must be paid for. Maybe, meanwhile, over here, there's the wife of maybe the man that he killed, who's sitting there taking certain vindictive pleasure in watching him die. That's closer but what is, the, what is the position of God? It's the position of the judge who's able to set aside all of that feeling and say, I see what you have done and you deserve to die for this. That's the wrath of God without passion or prejudice, which makes it all the more terrifying. God's goodness ought to put a quiver in your spine every now and then because you are not good. His ways are utterly perfect. So if you are going to spend your days depending upon a false Christ who will allow the guilty to escape because of some naive kindness, you do not know Jesus. Every antichrist and every sinner is going to face the bloody wrath of God Almighty on that final day. So for those of us who see wickedness spreading like a green laurel tree, as David says, we must not fret, but endure. Because that's what's happening with an eye on heaven that someday all of this is going to end. And it doesn't matter what form of wickedness it takes, whether it's this aggressive sexual immorality that we see, whether it's this excessive violence that other nations have seen, drunkenness, debauchery, you name it, greed. Don't fret about it. You keep an eye on heaven and remember what's going to happen in the end. But those of you who have not yet appropriately been driven by the fear of God, who have not repented of your sins, which means to turn away from your old life, throw yourself at the feet of Jesus and say, God, my life is yours. I worship you as God and I renounce myself. If you've not done that, beware. Because he's coming for you. And you might not have another chance. How do you know you're going to have the same capacity to make a choice tomorrow that you have today? Acts 17, we'll close with these verses. You might say, well, I didn't know about this till today. I didn't understand. That's okay. But listen to what Paul said. Acts 17, 30 through 31, preaching in Athens, which our own culture looks back to this as one of our founding, founding cities and founding philosophies. So in a sense, he's speaking to all of us. The times of ignorance God overlooked. He's not going to hold that against you. But now, you're not ignorant anymore. 
He commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And that's Jesus. And how do you know? Paul says, of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The risen Christ is the only sign you will be given that judgment is coming. You must turn from your sins. Run away from the wrath of God. Chase the freedom. Chase the pardon that he provides for you. Judgment is coming. And it's coming for you. But today, because it has not come yet, I can offer you freedom by the blood of Jesus.